0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.deroshi-meyer.org. This is our third week in Isaiah 1. I do not anticipate our walk through Isaiah. I mean, we're going through Isaiah this year, and we've third week in Isaiah 1. But I've taken these three weeks to try to Um, to try to unpack for us the process that I go through, partially, in thinking about how should Christians apply, engage the prophets. So I had four steps. Think in terms of oracles. So these prophets are speaking, thus says the Lord, and then what follows is an oracle. And then there's different types of speeches within those oracles. Indictments and instruction and warnings and testaments of hope. So thinking in terms of oracles, paying attention to history, walking through creation to consummation and trying to figure out where are these prophets fitting? Where, where are they speaking? Is it united monarchy, divided monarchy? Where there's an Israel in the north and Judah in the south? And if so, are they speaking before an exile or after exile? Um, all this counts. Remember the covenants and the canon. So we've got lots of them: Abrahamic and Noahic, sorry, Adamic and Noahic covenant. You've got the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, the New Covenant. And the prophets are talking about all these and drawing from all of them. And today we're going to focus in on see and savor Christ in the Gospel in our text. So with every prophecy, we want to ask ourselves, what does it have to say about Jesus? We want to meet Him. We want to nurture hope in the Gospel as we're reading through the Old Testament. This is what Peter said, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets all the prophets that his christ would suffer he has thus fulfilled and all the prophets who have spoken also proclaimed the days that were at work then and that are still at work today this days of the rise of the church when the barriers are just broken between jew and gentile and the kingdom of god is running among the nations this was foretold by all the prophets and Isaiah, one of the foremost. So, as we enter into his oracles, we want to be asking, how can I meet Jesus? The one who satisfies, who alone saves. How can I meet Him, who reigns over all things? So, Isaiah 1. We've been in this chapter for three weeks now, so I hopefully you're getting some sense of where it's headed. There's a problem And there is a solution that's given. And I want to focus in on the problem, look at the solution that's proclaimed, and then let that run us through the rest of the book and see how Jesus is magnified, even though the Messiah is never mentioned in Isaiah chapter 1. I think He's there, and I want to find Him for us. So we begin with a problem. A problem that needs fixing. Look with me at verse 4. Somebody read that for me, good and loud. Verse 4. They've forsaken the Lord. Utterly estranged, separated from God. They are sinful, it says. That is a problem. Offspring of evil doers. So this isn't just a fresh thing. This is generational. And now the present generation is bearing the fruits that mom and dad laid for them in not directing them to the Lord offspring of evildoers. Somebody read verses 5 and 6 for me, good and loud. It kind of sounds like a depiction of the guy who was broken down on the side of the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and the Good Samaritan showed up. Yet, this is not a physical description, this is a spiritual description. Absolutely sick. Deep, inner, difficulties, outer difficulties. That's how Israel's being described. This is a problem. Now we get in and it's given greater clarity the nature of their sickness. So turn with me over to chapter 1, 21 through 23. Injustice and unrighteousness. In my own life, I've encountered that most directly through our adoption journey. Three children coming home from Ethiopia and encountering what just felt like a broken system with injustice, one little boy that we were never able to bring home oppression reigning and in this in this day, there is massive injustice going on the Language is that of things were pure and now they're sour. The silvers become dross. The wines become diluted with sin and uckiness. A faithful city has become a whore. Or in the words of Jeremiah 31, I was your husband and yet you went after another. Justice and righteousness. That's a a word pair that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Justice and righteousness. Righteousness, God's passion to preserve and display His glory above all else. It's about right order in the world where He is shown supreme. And we are righteous insofar as we align with His passion for right order. So there was a day in Israel's history where the leaders were aligning with right order. Where God was in charge and where they were working to not show prejudice. They were working to love as God would have them love. To follow His lead. And yet now, everything is twisted and broken. Unrighteousness rather than righteousness. Injustice. This outworking of righteousness usually fighting against oppression and deceit. And now, in Isaiah's day, there's none of that. No fighting against it, rather going with the flow, and man's heart is wicked from his youth, and it gives rise to more and more evil unless it's curbed. And the leaders weren't curbing anything, and so we have massive injustice. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Now I come to this text... And I'm thinking, okay, how can I help you do what I'm about to do? And so one of the things that I'm encouraging you to do is look at your cross-references. So I've got two of them up here, an A and a B, and the NIV Study Bible, actually it should be the NIV Zondervan Study Bible, in there it has... This series of cross-references right next to the word righteousness. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. So it has Isaiah 5.7, 46.13, Isaiah 59.14. Now I'm here as the teacher, looked at all these on your behalf, and I said, oh, I want to dive into that one. I looked at all of them, and, and that's one that jumped out at me. So we're going to look at that one in a second. But you don't know which ones are going to jump out at you, and so you've just got to read them all. And if you've got a cool computer program that can just, you hover over it and it shows you, all the quicker, right? And then Isaiah 10.2. Isaiah 10.2, this is letter B, right next to not bringing justice to the fatherless and the widow. Isaiah 10.2 is simply a, a restatement, but in more graphic depiction of the suppression that they're doing on the most fragile in the society. In Isaiah's day, just not caring for the broken. And in doing so, not identifying the image of God and the value in every person. And if you don't care for what God made, you're giving testimony to your lack of love for the Maker. But I want to dive in here into Isaiah 59, 14. So, if you had your cross-references, it doesn't show up in the ESV, but... I encourage when you're doing Bible study, the kind of deep reading Bible study, not reading for distance, that's good, but right now reading for depth, then I encourage having at at least two or three solid translations and following the tools that they supply, different godly men and women working on these different translations and seeing things and guiding us, and no one's got all the connections down. So this one's drawn from the NIV Zondervan Study Bible, and we're gonna go into 59 14. So I, I went into that text and 5914 caught me. So then I put it into the rest of the context. You could do the same. Look at Isaiah 59, verse 4, verse 9, and 14. Righteousness. That's their problem. They don't have righteousness. This is what the text says no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. There's that word pair again. We hope for light and behold darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Now verse 14 that was cited in the cross-reference. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Now, this text just unpacks further the problem. And yet Isaiah and the rest of the prophets never leave us in the problem. They're always pushing us, pushing us deeper in to see the beauty of God and to have as we taste and see Him, to have hunger awakened in our soul to move us away from sin and toward repentance. So turn with me back into Isaiah chapter 1. And as we do, I'm going to pray that God would just arrest our souls as we begin to look beyond the problem to the solution that's in this text. Father, please meet us. We are needy. I'm asking that You would enlighten our eyes to see beauty today. To to let our hearts get Just rise with hope and hunger for what Christ alone can bring. To take us out of brokenness and despondency. To move us out of sin and enslavement into life and hope, peace and help. I'm asking that you just move. Let your word speak and give us an excitement about it. Through Jesus I pray. Amen. Now, back in chapter 1, there is a central promise that's given. And often as we're working through the prophets things are things can be a little more blurry than they are looking from the New Testament backward. When you're looking working through the prophets what it's often like is what it's like for me when I'm standing on the fourth floor at the downtown campus looking toward the city. Have any Has anyone done that? Standing at the fourth floor at the downtown campus, looking out at the city. The new U.S. Bank Stadium is just to the right. And then what I see is this. I see a cityscape. And where I'm standing, looking out in the city... It's honestly difficult for me. I've been traveling down to the city, working downtown since 2009, and I still don't know which buildings are closest and which buildings are furthest away. Because, yes, a very far building might be skinny, but a very far building might be really big. I could describe the city to you, but I'm not sure, ultimately whether this building or this building is closer to me or not. In fact, I can't always tell, especially if they're not connected in any way, what the relationship is between two buildings. So too when you're reading the prophets. They are seers, meaning that they can see into the future, and they're seeing true things. But sometimes, elements get blurred together so that it's only when we get the uh, the helicopter view as we have from the New Testament that we can begin to discern and distinguish things in ways that we can't when we only have one perspective, a little bit lower, looking out. And the prophets are down lower, looking ahead. We can do the same thing when you're um, sitting in Denver, looking out on the Rocky Mountains... And you're wondering, okay, which peak is closer, which one's a little bit further away? And it's not always clear. So we enter in and we begin to see elements in the text that are going to be overlapping side by side. And and it raises questions for us. And one thing we find is that, yes, we could jump into the New Testament and see things that, Isaiah anticipated, but for him it was more like an acorn than an oak tree. He didn't know how giant that acorn would would grow, how big the tree would be, how many branches it would have, how many leaves it would have, how many seasons it would live out. He didn't see all that, but he knew he had an acorn. And had he identified Jesus, he would have been able to say, yes, he's exactly the one that I was hoping for. He's the one that I was anticipating. But... So that's true, but what's also true is that within any given book, there is progression. These prophets are masters, master preachers that invite us in. If all we had was Isaiah 1, we wouldn't know all that we could know if we work our way through the rest of the book. So that even Isaiah is giving greater clarity as we walk through the book. And so our first step in tracking cross-references after we've gone back and looked at how they're using the covenants in the, pen, in the first five books of the Old Testament, my next step would be I want to track cross-references within Isaiah itself to try to understand what was Isaiah seeing as he walked through this text. So, right off the bat, I come to verse 18. And this, I see just a blanket promise Here it is. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, I made a note a couple of weeks ago about this whiteness. Anybody remember what it was? I compared the whiteness of wool, or the whiteness of snow, I contrasted that with the whiteness of this board. Anybody? Inherent whiteness, natural whiteness, compared to a newly made whiteness, uh, a mancrafted whiteness. And what this says here is that their sins will be White like snow is white, like wool is white, like naturally white. How, how do you get back there? How do you get back to a natural whiteness when you're already so stained? The language already right there, I think, is beginning to anticipate where Isaiah is going to go in the rest of the book and talk about new creation. Something fresh. A fresh beginning. But just notice the the promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be. They shall be. In the way that it's worded right there, there's no contingencies. No, if you do this, then this. It's just a A straightforward declaration. This is going to happen. You're going to move from stained to pure, says the Lord. Now, here's how it works in the prophets. We see this and we wonder how. How's that going to happen? Well, surrounding this verse is a whole bunch of challenge. Look at the challenge. Begin in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Keep scrubbing. Keep scrubbing. Get yourself clean. You've got shame due to past immorality? Keep scrubbing. Keep scrubbing. Remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes. You're struggling, looking at things that you shouldn't be looking at, clicking at things you shouldn't be clicking at, speaking in ways that you shouldn't be speaking. Stop it. That's how he preaches. Stop it. Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. In no sense that there could be a teacher. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, change yourself. That's how he starts his preaching. And it's often the case. Throughout the Old Covenant, we hear a lot of, change yourself, circumcise the foreskin of your own heart, and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 10.16. And the command is supposed to come, and if it hits the soil of a fertile heart, It should humble a person and move them to say, I can't. Look at the next verse, right after verse 18. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Blessing will come if you obey. That's just Deuteronomy 28. That's how it's set up. If you obey, then blessing. But if you disobey, if you refuse and rebel, says Isaiah, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. To feel the weightiness of living under the old covenant, which Moses himself identified, and which Paul explicitly stated bore a ministry of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9. The Old Covenant condemned because it was given to a people. I mean, it's the right kind of call. I shouldn't be oppressive. I should be clean. The call is not bad, but what the law was powerless to do, weakened by the flesh, says Paul, in Romans 8.3, God does. Yet right here, all we're hearing is, get right, clean yourself. But right in the promise, right in the middle is this promise. Sandwich between 16 and 17 and 19 and 20. Wash yourselves. Be willing and obedient. Right between that is just this promise. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And there's a tension. A tension that you and I as the reader are supposed to feel, I believe. How can a God who is ever faithful to His Word bring about whiteness and cleanness to a people who can't meet the conditions? How can He bring righteousness to a people who are by their very nature unrighteous? Turn with me over to verse 26 and 27. So God identifies their sin. He says in verse 24, "Therefore." Therefore. And that word is going to show up all throughout the prophets. You'll see it often after the sins are declared, "Therefore the sentence is made." And the divine judge who off, who also operates, I mean God does everything in the prophets. These lawsuits, he's the jury, he's the lawyer, he's the judge, he's the attorney. The only thing he's not is the defendant. And he declares, therefore, I will get relief from my enemies. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. Verse 26, and I will restore your judges as at first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness. Something's changed right here. Back in verse 16, the primary actor was the person sitting in the pew. You wash yourself. You clean yourself. If you're obedient, then. Now everything's changed. We get to the end of the chapter, and we've moved from, you do this, you do this, to, I'm certain judgment is coming. Because you're a sinful people and you're not changing, therefore judgment is coming, but I, but I, but I. Look at all those eyes. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you, yes. But verse 26, I will restore your judges and you shall be called. The result, the result of when God moves in, you shall be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed, now look at this, by justice. That's a passive verb. Shall be redeemed. And you and I, the reader, should ask, by whom? How? How will they move from scarlet life to wool life? How how will they make that transition? This suggests it has something to do with moving from you do to I will do. There's a shift that's taking place there. But then it just says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her... There's a condition. What's the condition there in verse 26? 27? Pardon? Who repent. Who repent. Those in her who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. There is that movement from... Individual responsibility to a corporate new identity. But I would just be cautious because in this book, Israel is not the United States, for example. In fact, the United States would be put into a totally different sphere in the plural throughout this book the nations. Something's going to happen in the midst of the nation that's going to have an impact on the nations in this book. And this nation is called Israel, nation singular. And as we're going to see, that nation singular is going to be represented by a king. And this nation here is not the present state of Israel either. Don't confuse that either. Contemporary Israel is not to be equated with Old Testament covenant Israel. We'll talk more about that as we walk through this book. But the move to justice and righteousness happening among the nations is something that will only come about through... the one that Isaiah calls the servant who represents both Israel, and it's too light a thing that he should simply restore Israel. God will make him who represents that nation a light to the nations, Isaiah 49.6. But you're right. What you're seeing here is a shift to a, a new identity on a corporate scale. The entire nation has been transformed, and the question is, who is that nation, and how do we understand them? And this book's going to unpack that further. Now, I've got four footnotes up here, cross-references, that you could find in the NIV Zonderman Study Bible. One next to the City of Righteousness, and then you've got all these. One next to the Faithful City, and you've got these. One next to in her who repent, and you've got these. And by righteousness. So a whole bunch, and these are, I restricted it just to the Isaiah references. Now I have to say I was just astounded, disappointed to look in my ESV and not find any Isaiah references. So this is one reason why I think it serves all of us to have more than one study Bible when we're reading for depth. To, to have some different notes and, and be able to work off of more than just one text. So, out of all these, I what jumped out at me as I was reading through these is first, you're going to be called the city of righteousness. And I want us to look at these three texts right here. Jumping right out of Isaiah 1, 26 and 27, it's sending us later into the book. And then... This last one or rather in her who repent see I want us to look at 5920 So what we're doing is we're studying Isaiah 1 and now we're going to use the tools that the team of scholars have given us to leap further into the book and we're going to look at those four texts First Isaiah 33 verses 5 and 6 This is what we read The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. Notice the future orientation. Talking about the same thing that it is in Isaiah chapter 1. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. The very city, it said in Isaiah 1, will be called the city of righteousness. Now he says, in that day, why is it going to be called that? Because it's going to be filled. The entire city of Jerusalem, Zion, will be characterized by righteousness, by justice. And He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, knowledge. Those are great words. I read that and I say, I want some of that. Wisdom, knowledge, salvation. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Paul says in Romans 3, that's the problem with the world. There's no fear of God among them. And all of a sudden, here, this new Jerusalem that will be at the center of the people of God is, is being identified with a categories that all of us should long for. But for Isaiah, it was future. Now we go to Isaiah 46, the next one on that list. I bring near my righteousness. It's coming. It's coming, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God's on the move. It's going to happen. Last text. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up. It's like He's going to plant something, and there's going to be a new organic, natural produce. Something flowing out of what He planted is going to sprout up. It's just going to, boop, an apple. Boop, a pomegranate. Love, joy, peace, patience, fruits are going to begin to to just blossom in the midst of this city when God does His work. God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up. It's interesting. It's not just something that He's going to do within us on behalf of others. Something that he's going to do is also going to result in his own magnification. Now I want you to notice something in this text. Notice these words. In that future, it's like a new garden is going to be planted. There's going to be sprouting righteousness and praise just sprouting up. Now just let your eyes go back to Isaiah 1. And look at the verses directly following the two that we've looked at. Verse 27 says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So right now, Israel's being portrayed like a, a dead garden. And now God contrasts the dead garden with a living garden. We had a flourishing few spots in our garden this year. And then, we've tried and we just can't make pumpkins any bigger than this. (laughs) Not that day. This is a a garden replacement, right? What I want you to see is that this is part of the language. To to be in unrighteousness is to be like an oak with withered leaves. But now that's going to be replaced by a flourishing, sprouting new life. Like the Garden of Eden was in its beginning stages. Almost like a a new creation starting over again. Keep that in mind. Now, there was another text. Of those, I, I had three on the top first line, and then there was a fourth Isaiah 59. And we go there now. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw as he looked out, there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There there was no one like Moses who could stand in the gap, no one like Isaiah. Who could rise up and pray. He looked out on the nation and it was empty. There wasn't even a plant. He saw that there was no man. No one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. Notice. God is righteous here. The ultimate result is that the city will be called the place of righteousness, and therefore it's going to be reflecting its creator. And now God, who it says is righteous, is going to be on the move. His own arm is going to bring salvation, his righteousness will uphold him. He put on righteousness, hear this, see if it echoes anything that you know about. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, and a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression. So let's see what we have. Here's my question. You look at the text. Whom, whom will God save? Those who turn from their transgressions. Now look at chapter 127. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. So this future garden transformation is not for everyone. The new Jerusalem is going to be fully identified with those who've been transformed by the righteous one. And the only ones who will be there are those who have repented. Or, as it says here, who've turned from their transgression. That means they've recognized their sinners. To turn, that's what repentance is. It's about 180. You've been heading toward that which is evil with your back toward God, and now you, you turn around. You turn from the evil, and you're pursuing and you're saying, God, I want more of you. That's repentance. It's it's more than just words. It's a reorientation, a new direction in our lives. And the only ones who will experience the future righteousness in the new Jerusalem, the new garden, are those who have turned in repentance. Been willing to admit, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Next question. According to this passage, how will God save? Just look at it. How will He do it? What do you see? He will do it by His own arm. What else? What will He look like? He will look like a soldier, a warrior king. How will he not do it? The line just ahead of his own arm. He will not do it by any man who is part of this sinful community. How will God save? He will do it, one, by supplying what man cannot bring on his own. There was no man. So when he says, wash yourselves and make yourself clean, Start doing what is right. Turn from evil. There was no man. No one. And so God promises He will accomplish what man could not do on His own. What the law was powerless to do, weakened as it was by the flesh, God did. And how? By sending His own Son. That's where we're headed. But right here what we see is there was no man and so God is going to supply what no man can do. And second, as you already noted, He's going to do it by His own arm. His righteousness will uphold Him. And then we get this language of breastplate and helmet and garments and cloak. What did that bring to mind? Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. And I am confident Paul has... This is one of the texts, and there's another one we're going to look at in just a second, that he has in mind. So, but, but get that. We're the people of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, we put on our whole armor of God so that we will not give in to the devil's schemes. We put on a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, a shield of faith, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, a belt of truth, and in our hand is one thing. What is it? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But in this text, it's not a person who's wearing the armor, it's God Himself. So in Paul's mind, something must have happened wherein the people of God can be so identified with God Himself that He is actually winning His battle through His people. That the end times, future deliverance that God is wanting to bring, and we'll see, it's not just for Israel, it's for the world, that He is going to be dressed for battle, and Paul says He's doing it through His church. That's where we're headed, but but we can't just jump there because there is no church apart from those who are identified with the king who will represent Yahweh's reign on earth. But what I want you to see is God's going to do it by his arm and God's going to do it as a warrior king dressed for battle. By his arm and as a warrior king. Now, if you have the ESV Study Bible and you had the text open to this passage, if all you did was look in the cross references, you wouldn't see the connection. I was searching, trying to find, please give me this connection. I, I want to go there. And in the ESV Study Bible notes, they provide it. So, anybody have the ESV Study Bible note for Isaiah 59 17? Who's got the ESV study Bible in here open right now? You do? Okay, could you read for us good and loud Isaiah 59, 17, the note at the bottom of the page related to this verse? Okay. I'm just on a journey through Isaiah trying to understand Isaiah chapter 1, 26 and 27. It shot me up to Isaiah 59, And now I read in my note on Isaiah 59, 17, it takes me backwards to Isaiah chapter 11. And it says that the very armor of God, the armor that God is wearing, the armor identified with God, is going to be the very equipment of the Messiah. So all of a sudden, my my interests are piqued, And so now I turn in my Bible back to Isaiah chapter 11. What do we find there? Here's what we find. How is it that God is going to bring out His end times future salvation? How is He going to accomplish it? And Isaiah makes it very explicit. It's not just God shouting from the heavens. He's going to do it through a man that He will appoint that is different from any other man because there was no man on the earth who could accomplish it. God is going to send a son. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, it says he'll be born of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 11 now, it says he'll be spirit-empowered. In Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to see he's going to be so identified with God himself that he can be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here's what we read, though, here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse... And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. More of those words that are just so appealing. The Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of those are the statements we just read about. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. There was no man who was doing that rightly. But now, one will rise. A warrior king, representing God himself, who will bring righteousness, who will judge rightly. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Just yesterday morning, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I've been on Saturday mornings when I have the chance, walking through um, Scripture with my boys. And we got through First Peter, and I said, where do you want to go next? And they said, Revelation. And I said, oh boy. So <laughs> yesterday, we were looking at Revelation 2, um, where Christ speaks to the church in Pergamum. I think that was the one. But it starts out, to the angel in the church in Pergamum declares the one who has the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And my son Isaac said right away, that simply means that Jesus can cut up his enemies by his mere word. That's why the sword's coming out of his mouth. Because he just speaks and the enemy is put down. And that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And we see the anticipation of that right here. Out of his mouth will come a rod. He just just speaks and it blisters people. And with breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Bah! Gone. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Truth. The belt of truth. That's what that is. Right there. Exactly. God will come as a warrior king. Dressed for battle. Displaying in His person truth and righteousness. A helmet of salvation. And how will we see Him? What will He look like? Him. This one. From the stump of Jesse, empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, working righteousness with powerful speech. That's how righteousness is going to be reestablished. God's going to be working through a person. Now, he's not only a spirit empowered warrior king. What else? What was the other element that was part of Isaiah 59? Warrior king and the arm. Of the Lord. Now, as hard as I tried, I couldn't find this one in any of the cross references. But if you were to just take out a concordance, even like your Strong's exhaustive, your ESV exhaustive, your NIV exhaustive, and look up the word arm, then you could find it. Where would it take us? There are many, many places throughout this book where the arm of the Lord is mentioned one of them jumps off the page at me who has believed what he has heard from us Isaiah 53 and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed he for he grew up like a young plant wait the arm of the Lord is not just an arm. The arm of the Lord is a He. He's a person. Which person is the arm of the Lord? By which God, as a warrior dressed for battle, is going to work His righteousness? He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected of men. The arm of the Lord was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant text. And just starting with Isaiah 1, 26 and 27, that takes us to Isaiah 59 and it declares God's going to be working His arm, His righteous arm. He's going to be bringing it. It's the means by which He will save only those who repent. Only those who turn from their transgression. It's not going to happen by people working harder to clean themselves. No, the new kind of creation is only going to be brought about by God. Working through his servant king. Who is the arm of the Lord? Now, I don't know if you saw it, but I want to draw our attention to something. Remember that discussion of the garden? How in the future it's like going to be a a garden, all grown up, with lots of leaves and lots of bounty, in contrast to the present state of Israel, which is, according to 1, 28, 29, 30, they're like an oak With withered leaves. They've got a bad garden. Look at how this passage starts. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. It's where every garden starts. My son, Ezra, we we have, I made these little box these boxes, garden boxes, and then Teresa set each plot out. Each kid has their own area, and Ezra's box is the strawberries. And we just put in a few, and all of a sudden, it's loaded. And these shoots are going everywhere, and Teresa's trying to control them. Lots of shoots, but it all started from one, from one. Before you can have the garden, there is one that will rise up like a young plant, like a shoot. So this is the text we are looking at. As the earth brings forth, it sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up. It's going to become an entire city, this garden. But do you remember how Even when we were back in Isaiah 11, that was the place where we saw the Messiah's armor. How did the passage start? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. How is it that we move from bad garden to good garden? It doesn't just happen. God doesn't just work a good garden. It happens only through one man. Who's representing all of Israel. Who's going to bear all of their wickedness upon himself. Who is righteous and then his righteousness will be declared over everyone else. Let's just go a little bit further down from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, it's this one man, spirit empowered, warrior king, how does he move to triumph only through deep, deep tribulation? Because God cannot just forgive, he is a just God who must punish sin completely. So he comes and bears our griefs. Indeed, the chastisement that brings us peace was upon him with his wounds. We become healed. Healed. Hear that? They were sick. Fully. Like the guy on the side of the road that the Samaritan helped. And by his wounds, we become healed. He'll become a full blown guilt offering, dead on the altar. Yet after he's dead, he will see. What's that movement suggest? Dead on the altar, and then he sees. Resurrection. He shall see his offspring. He never had a wife, or did he? He has a bride. That bride is made up of numerous offspring. But it's all spiritual. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one. He knows who he is. He knows what he's doing. And he himself is righteous. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. There was no man, no man who was righteous. And so God sends His righteous one, His arm, His warrior king, who brings justice, and then through His sacrificial death, His righteousness is accounted to the many. But the many who have repented... The many who have turned from their transgressions. He'll make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Now look back at our passage, 126 and 27. I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent. By righteousness. Divine passive, I said. That is, the passive action, we don't know, they shall be redeemed. By whom? By God. How? By His servant. Notice the word here. They shall be redeemed by justice. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. Because of justice. Hell exists because God is good, not because He is bad. And Christ took an eternity of hell upon His back for the countless millions of elect throughout the ages. Ponder that. The amount, the distance that Jesus had to come down as the eternal God... The, the distance that He had to move from that elevated state down to become humanity, moving all the way to the cross, in those three hours, He suffered more than all of the sins of mankind. Every person's bound up and eternally suffering in hell forever in conscious torment. He was able to satisfy the wrath of God in those three hours because he went, the the level of suffering he endured, I'm not just talking about in his body, I'm talking about he was God. And he underwent that on our behalf. I I can't even begin to fathom what that means. That God's wrath against all the sins of all time among all the elect, could be satisfied in those three hours. It, it just helps me begin to taste the level to which He came down and became like us. Out of love. Out of love. You shall be called the city of righteousness. The righteous one will make many to be accounted Righteous. How will it happen? Zion will be redeemed by righteousness. The righteous one will make it happen. There's so many other connections like this one. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. To put him to grief. That he would become a guilt offering. Well, look with me back at chapter 1. Verse 11, you could only get this if you were tracking your Strong's numbers. So this is a a thick one, but you could do it too. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of your bulls. Your sacrifices are not... Paying the penalty. I do not delight in them, but I will delight in this one. It's the exact same word. It was the delight of the Lord to crush him. I do not delight in yours. I delight in that one. A few other texts as we bring this out. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom. To do what? To establish it. To uphold it with justice, with righteousness. This is how the kingdom of God is characterized. It is the kingdom of the Messiah. We can't separate them. And if you want to experience that, you've got to be identified with Him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring it about. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. That was Isaiah 11. The spirit empowered shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, I'll put my spirit on him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not blow out. If that's where your heart is today, just feeling like a faintly burning wick, feeling like a bruised reed, hear the mercy of our God. He's ready to just open up his arms, not break you off, but he sent Jesus in order to bring healing. He sent Jesus in order to give you the hope that justice will be wrought. You've been abused. You've been hurt. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And He will. For all of us, He already has. He's repaid every one of our sins. And either Christ will bear it or He will inflict vengeance at the end of the age on all those who have failed to repent. And surrender. This is the passage that Jesus opened his ministry with. He's in Nazareth. He opens up the scroll to Isaiah and he says this The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's the exact same term that's used in Isaiah 1 of the sick Israel. He's the healer of that problem. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Do you get that? He's the sprout. We're withered oaks. And we get Transformed that we may be called oaks of righteousness because of our identification with the spirit-empowered arm of the Lord, warrior, king, servant. That's how Jesus is talked about. All to the worship of our God. To the worship of our God. All the prophets, all the prophets spoke of Christ's suffering and the glories that would follow. And over the next nine months, eight months, seven months, I just want us to walk through this unbelievable book and get a taste, a heightened taste of Christ from the Old Testament and see our affections rise in hope for the glory of God that He is promising to disclose, indeed that He has already started to disclose through sending Christ in his first coming, and that he will culminate in glory at his second appearing. Isaiah's got it all in his mind. We're able to see more than he saw, but what he saw was true. And I hope I can walk us through in a way that will just faithfully let God's word speak. And that He, in His by His Spirit, would be working in us the righteousness, the hope, the knowledge, the wisdom that is Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I pray that in the next months, You would help these people become better stewards of their sword. Empowered by you who are the great warrior, fighting in them, through them, and victory is certain. Thank you that no power on earth can stand against you. Greater are you who who is in us than he that is in the world. We need hope because this world is dark. Uphold and help us, I pray. Encourage us through truth, and may we wear it like a belt. Through Jesus, I ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.